Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. It's sometimes hard to know where to begin as we talk about everything that's going on. Whether that's Afghanistan, whether that's the border, whether that's COVID, never mind conversations about the economy. But there were a couple of stories that hit into these conversations that we were having, and I wanted to be able to dig deep in a couple of places. We have what's the, the lies of the communist Chinese. We've been talking about COVID. We've been talking about the nonsense of the border, and of course, you've got uh, the White House press secretary Jen Psaki saying we're gonna we're gonna get rid of horses. We're gonna the border patrol isn't gonna have horses on the border, and that's gonna make the difference. This lie about the whip and attacking Haitians, and then of course, you have the pseudoscience all around COVID. You have these people engaging the pseudoscience about masks, and pushing policies that are really backwards, not only in their, 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 their implementation, but in the results. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it is so good to be with you. Facebook Tony Katz Radio, the phone number 833-468-8669, 833-GOT-TONY. Jim Garrity joins us right now from National Review, senior political correspondent of National Review, G-E-R-A-G-H-T-Y, Jim Garrity. Uh, is his name. And I, you've got a couple of these pieces, and I want to go over them with you in these kind of component uh, parts here. And it starts with how uh, you're, you're looking at some things that uh, the former FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, has said, and he has been everywhere. And he's been, well, I'm not a fan of his. He's been pretty interesting in these conversations of COVID. And the quote is, the Chinese CDC went dark on their U.S. counterparts. I have made the argument that you can't trust the communist Chinese. What is it that Gottlieb is saying here? And what was your take of it? Sure. So I would say I am generally positive towards Gottlieb, probably one or two more notches more than you are, Tony. By the way, it's very nice to talk to you. Um, he's got a new, Scott Lee has a new book coming out called Uncontrolled Spread. Um, and the first couple chapters are kind of this, you know, step by step, blow by blow of um, the emergence of COVID-19 in Wuhan and what the government knew and when, what the U.S. government knew and when and what kind of communications they were getting from uh, the their equivalent over in the Chinese CDC. And, and you know, I, I, to summarize it all, the more ominous the information got, the less the Chinese CDC was telling the U.S., <laughs> which is kind of the opposite. You, you'd kind of want it to be the other way, that the worse the information was coming in, the more you'd want uh, information. And they, they, as you said, they went dark. I think the comment that really just, you know, I, I folded back the page, talked a bit about this on National Review, it is the 6th of January, 2020. We're not talking about Capitol Hill in 2021. We're talking about, you know, this. Um, uh, Redfield, the U.S. CDC, Robert Redfield, the U.S. CDC director, is getting some data from George Gao, who is the uh, head of the Chinese Center of CDC, uh, Chinese CDC. And he, you know, sends them over what they know about the first 27 patients with what was, at that point, we were still allowed to call it the Wuhan flu, this, you know, strange new respiratory illness. And Redfield looks at it, and he realizes that there's like three clusters in three different family members, um, husband and a wife, child and a parent, things like that. And remember, at this point, the Chinese government's claim is this is all just being spread by contact with animals. 
And Redfield's like, are you going to have the whole family take him to the wet market to go shopping? I mean, it's possible, but all three of them? You know, he basically listens to the look. I think this is, you know, this looks like evidence this is spreading from person to person. Uh, page 48 of Gottlieb's book, he says, um, two days later, Redfield sent another note, this time attaching a formal letter offering support from the USDDC. Gao called Redfield back and cried during the phone call, telling Redfield that they might be too late to stop a larger epidemic. Now, Tony, it was not until January 21st that the Chinese government finally admitted, but almost everybody had known for weeks, that this virus was spreading from human being to human being, and it was contagious. And by that point, I mean, you know, the onset of symptoms in the first uh, diagnosed patient, at least according to the Lancet, was December 1st, 2019. So we're talking about like seven weeks worth of, uh, uh, you know, uncontrolled spread well beyond Wuhan, all across China, into other countries. By that point, they detected cases in Thailand, Japan, and we already had our first people here in the United States. So, you know, you and I on, on your program have talked about the lab leak theory, and I think it is more likely than not. But even if you want to put that aside, even if this is entirely zoonotic, we still have this issue of the Chinese government at a time when the world needed its government the most and at a time where dealing with the, the uh, outbreak openly and transparently and honestly would have made the most difference. That's when they shut up, and that's when they said there was no problem, ensuring that this virus was going to spread to the four corners of the world. But this is not a conversation about China unleashing a virus. And and I'm still not somebody who believes that that's the case. I am a believer, as we have discussed, that it was a leak from the Wuhan lab. And yes, I'm like you. I do not believe that this is zoonotic, meaning it just jumped from, from animals to humans. And oh my gosh, this is, as we have been learning, this this article from The Telegraph about uh, the, even the push from Peter Daszak in 2018 uh, about uh, looking into how to uh, help the Wuhan lab engage in some of these ideas for quote-unquote, different purposes. Uh, But we're not still having the conversation that this was a purposeful leak. It was the communists doing what communists do. They had a problem, and the answer was, don't tell anybody nothing. Yeah, although I will note that there's a uh, David Asher, who's currently with the uh, Hudson Institute, but who uh, was working for the State Department in 2020. And in fact, he was one of those guys who was trying to traced back to the potential links to the Wuhan uh, Institute of Virology. He offers the argument that by basically not telling the world, they, the Chinese government had de facto weaponized it. So basically, they recognized they were going to get hit by, bad by this virus. Oh, you and I and are not told. disagreeing. I, I just, okay, yeah. I, I mean, but, but I mean, like, this is one of those moments yeah, where I think the distinction, yeah. the, the distinction has a difference, even if the resultant is the same. There's yeah. a difference between China saying, aha, you know, and twiddling their, their, their handlebar mustache mm-hmm. and saying, holy crap, no one say nothing. We'll let them deal with it. Just don't say nothing. We didn't do it. It wasn't our fault. That's it. Right. We're yeah. talking about the latter part of what happened. And yes, they are guilty regardless. Yeah. Again, and that's, that's kind of frustrating because uh, I was I, I find it fascinating. The, or actually, not just fascinating, but frustrating that the entire U.S. intelligence community for 90 days, the President of the United States says, we need the best information you can get us on where this virus came from. And all we got was a one-and-a-half-page summary and no further information. After having all kinds of leaks about, you know, Chinese uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology employees getting sick and, you know, other things that would seem to, I guess, you know, you could pick the, I think you can safely say there's a lot of circumstantial evidence pointing towards a lab leak. Now, it's not, you know, smoking gun. 
But after a while, that circumstantial evidence just starts piling higher and higher and higher. You end right. up like uh, John Stewart on, on Colbert saying, well, look, you know, if you have three institutions in the whole wide world that are working on gain of function research in novel coronaviruses found in bats, and then you happen to have an outbreak of a virus that is like a novel coronavirus found in bats outside of one of those three, what does common sense tell you? And yet we, you know, here we are approaching really two years since the outbreak of this virus. And it just kind of feels like the, the intelligence community's review, which came up with Bupkis, or at least we were told it came up with Bupkis, uh, is the last word. And we're not even hearing much about congressional hearings. And, you know, it just kind of feels like the world has shrugged its shoulders and decided we're just not going to ask him any more questions about where this virus came from, which, of course, is a way to guarantee we will not be prepared for the next one. Talking to Jim Garrity of National Review Online, nationalreview.com. This common sense leads us to the part two of our conversation, which is about masks. And you saw the – now, look, I am not a believer that masks stop COVID. I think that the Waterloo study, uh, mannequin study, is very, very uh, effective in in, in proving that's the case. Certainly, I'm a believer that – Moving the air is more effective in keeping people from getting COVID. And one of the places where I do agree with Scott Gottlieb is the idea that the six feet that we're supposed to stay apart, the social distancing, that was a made up number. But when we talk about the outdoors, masking outdoors seems to have no effect at all. Yet it was the governor of Oregon, Kate Brown, who said, we're going to put a mask on everybody who can't socially distance, even outdoors. And you took a look at what the data showed after they did this. And it showed what? Yeah, and Tony, some people were mad as hell about this this morning. I wrote it, it went up on the, the corner yesterday. But uh, so I looked at five different measuring sticks of how Oregon is doing. Right now, I believe Oregon is the only state uh, that requires masking outdoors, not just indoors, even if you're fully vaccinated, which strikes me as just an utterly inane policy. Um, in fact, this morning, I was working, there was a, a research from, I don't know, uh, MIT or Harvard Medical School. One of them was basically saying, out of all the places where they've been able to diagnose or, or identify where somebody caught it, less than 1% of all uh, COVID-19 infections occur outdoors. You're, you're, it's, you know, like I said, wind currents, air currents, there's just too much chance, you know, there's just much less chance you're going to get it out there. And uh, so, or, but Oregon requires this. And so I looked at total, uh, new cases, total number of active cases, which is basically, uh, you know, you get it and you are on the active case list until you no longer have it. Um, Deaths, hospitalization rate, and hospital capacity. And oh, by the way, it's worth noting. I, I did not uh, know. I did not know this until I started looking into this. Uh, Oregon and Washington State have the fewest hospital beds per capita out of the entire country, which is uh, you know a little bit surprising, and also not a very good thing when you're going through a pandemic. You want to have as much ex- extra room as possible. So if you're hearing, you know, Washington and Oregon, oh my goodness, the hospitals are filling up out there. Well, some of it is that they just simply I think, don't have enough hospitals and don't have enough. Uh, beds, and some of that is a state regulation out in Oregon that required them to get hospitals basically needed permission from the state if they wanted to expand their capacity, which is dumb, if you ask me, but that's another conversation for another time. But anyway, right. so if you look at if you look at active cases, um, on the day they enacted the restriction and required you to wear masks outdoors, Oregon had 49,889 as of yesterday, and that's almost a month. It has 86, 623 active cases, an increase of 73% over the past week. Now, I should point out, cases only mean a positive test. It does not necessarily mean the person is significantly ill. Maybe they, you know, went in for other medical procedures, did a COVID test, and they came out positive. Probably, most likely you go in, see your doctor, you got sniffles, stuff like that. Uh, could be vaccinated, could not be vaccinated, you know. 
Um, now, the thing is, you know, where the you know state of Oregon can you know hold their head up high is they can say that yes, uh, the average seven-day average of daily new cases did decline a bit uh, from a peak of 23-22 on August 30th. That's about a week after this mask up outdoors. Uh, rule went into effect to about 1616, 1616. The wave in Oregon has peaked. I think what you're seeing in Oregon is the same thing you're seeing in the South, the same thing you're seeing in Florida, Missouri, all across the country. Delta variant comes in in a wave. And the point that I'm trying to make here, a whole bunch of people did not like, is for for listeners out there, I'm very pro-vaccination. If you had COVID-19, good. You're probably protected. I would go out and get a vaccine my, vaccinated myself just for double protection, but you're a grown adult. You can make your own decisions. And, but the thing is, you can't mask your way out of it. The, the gist is that Delta variant is just really, really contagious. And unless you're wearing an N95 24-7, <laughs> sooner or later, you or your spouse or maybe your kids or somebody else in your household is going to come in contact with somebody who's got the Delta variant of COVID-19. And it's going to get into them. Now, they may not get all that sick. And particularly if they're vaccinated, they're really not going to get all sick, but they can still give it to you. And so you can't mask your way out of this. It, we should really be thinking of the Delta variant as sooner or later, everybody, almost everybody in the United States is going to run into it sooner or later. So the question is, do you want your body prepared? If you're vaccinated, you're prepared. If you had it before, it sounds like you're prepared, too. At least that's what studies are saying. Again, I might want a little extra protection, but that's you. And, uh, and everyone's going to do exactly that. Me, I'm not anti-vax at all. I certainly believe that natural immunity is there and exists and works. But your your point is one that we make. Masks don't stop COVID in general. And Delta is on the downward. I, we're just here in my beloved Indiana, just about to hit uh, the peak. But it is in the downward in a lot of places. And if we were to be hit with the Mu variant or another one, it will, based on history, go in these waves as well, to mask our way out is a, a disastrous idea. Nor do I believe one can whip their way out of the failures of Afghanistan or the border, and that's what the Biden administration seems to be doing. Today it was Jen Psaki, well, we still have a couple of minutes, saying that the border is no longer going to have uh, horses, right? The, they won't have Border Patrol agents on horses because there was a Haitian man being whipped by a Border Patrol agent, which and that never happened. It never, ever happened. But the border is a disaster. These Haitian migrants and others is a disaster. And it seems very clear that the Biden administration is spinning overtime to try and make this the story so no one talks about what's going on at the border and forgets about what happened in Afghanistan. Is this a winning argument for the Biden administration? So I to try to keep score, uh, Tony, it sounds like they're trying to get out of the border scandal by getting into a border patrol or, or whipping Haitians and, and, and our, you know, uh, a malevolent racist scandal, um, which was to get out of the Afghanistan scandal, which was to get out of the inflation scandal. Which was to get out of the board. You know, they, they basically the Biden administration's approach is to just get you. Know, each problem is is one after another. You know, is is, is one after another. Um, yeah, this this has been kind of utterly bizarre. I told Tony, I'm kind of marveling at the fact that this, you know you look at the uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection numbers month by month. The, the, the surge of migrants coming across the border, the President Biden assured us, was just part of a regular seasonal pattern. Just keeps going <laughs> month after month after month, even in the summer heat where it usually slows down. That's where there is a seasonal pattern. You know, even then we were hitting almost, in some case, some months more than 200,000 people caught trying to come across the border. Um, and it hasn't subsided yet. And it's, you know, that's, it's, you know, just because the national media stopped talking about it 
doesn't mean people stop trying to speak over. It, it, the situation was as bad as it ever was. But, you know, the existence of a, of a de facto refugee camp of 10,000 people in Del Rio, Texas, that didn't really catch the attention of the media nearly as much as a photo of a guy on horseback using his reins with two Haitians fleeing across. That got their attention, even though 10,000 people to border did not. So I'm really kind of – I think it was Glenn Greenwald or somebody made the argument of if what you write pleases liberals, it does not need to be fact-checked. That, that, is, the, that, is, the, that is the, you know – it, the effective uh, mo of a lot of mainstream media publications, and Tony kills. I, I don't like to say, but it, it, it's true. That, that really seems to be the case. It seems to be nobody really cared about Del Rio until it could be turned into a. And here's some the legacy of racism and slavery here in American law enforcement, and you know all those familiar, trite and often spectacularly unrealistic and inaccurate uh, depictions. And getting pushed out by Representative Maxine Waters and getting seconded by Yamichi Alcinder of PBS. We're going to talk more about it. I got to let you go. His name is Jim Garrity, National Review Online, G-E-R-A-G-H-T-Y. Jim uh, Garrity, you can also check out his books, uh, Between Two Scorpions. You can find that at Amazon.com or wherever fine books are sold. It's a fantastic thriller, Between Two Scorpions. Go check it out for yourself. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. So the ACLU, <laughs> oh, these people, these woke folk, the ACLU altered a quote from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, the former uh, justice, Supreme Court, died at the age of 87, and they took to Twitter, did the ACLU, supposedly the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, to uh, commemorate her death, and they want to talk about her support for abortion. And they wrote, with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, we lost a champion for abortion and gender equality, and on the anniversary of her death, we, the fight to protect abortion access is more urgent than ever. And so they, they uh, tweet out, the decision whether or not to bear a child is central to a person's life, to their well-being and dignity. Whether the government controls that decision for people, they are, when the government controls that decision for people, they are being treated as less than a fully adult human responsible for their own choices. But that's not what she said. She said the decision or whether the decision whether or not to bear a child is central to a woman's life, to her well-being, and they changed woman to person and her to there because the ACLU is so woke that Ruth Bader Ginsburg isn't woke enough. Only women have babies, and anyone who says otherwise is lying. There. Happy to clear that all up for you. This is Tony Katz today. I never meant to be so bad to you. Why don't we start from... Uh, point A, and that is, let us change the narrative. The narrative is that we have a human rights crisis at the border. Uh, I am a Texan. We have about 2,000 miles, a little under 2,000 miles of border. Uh, and most of that border is well protected with legal points of entry, and it operates appropriately. 
But what has happened is because of the Trump relic of Title 42 and the demonizing of immigrants through our governor, Governor Abbott, who's looking toward the next election, we can't seem to really uh, know how to handle this surge. I think the- that's Representative Sheila Jackson Lee. Uh, Greg Abbott's not your problem. It's so silly. I mean, I'm going to dig into this in a little bit. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. It's just embarrassing at this stage of the game. And But at least she was honest. Let us change the narrative. That is at least a very, very honest look at the border. I've got more to say about the border. It, it's, it seems like it's this never-ending story. I'm, I want to share later some audio from uh, Representative Cuellar, who's a Democrat from Texas. But he's making crazy good sense on on the border. And he was on MSNBC, and he ended his talk with this. And I was like, oh, my gosh, does he does he realize what he even just said when he said this? President Obama and Secretary Jay Johnson did that. So, yes, there is an example out there, a playbook that we can follow. Now, I know some of my more progressive Democrats don't like what President Obama did. They call him the commander of deportation. But I tell you something about President Obama and Secretary Jay Johnson. They treated people with respect, but they follow the law. Otherwise, why have laws on the books? First, they referred to Obama's deporter-in-chief. That was the expression that Representative Cuellar is going for. But did you hear that end line from the congressman, Democrat from Texas? They treated people with respect, but they follow the law. Otherwise, why have laws on the books? This, this is the question. And what the progressives in your party, Representative Cuellar, have said is, yeah, why do we have laws on the books? Laws should only be used against conservatives. And in the main, white people. All right, all right. That was only some of the members of Congress who believe that. Some of the progressives, not all of them. Of course they don't believe there should be any laws about the border. They believe in open borders. Your party believes in open borders. So when you ask this very question right here. Otherwise, why have laws on the books? They've already asked and answered that question. They did it years ago, and they've been working towards this moment. This is what we're seeing. Which brings us to Tulsi Gabbard. The humanitarian and national security crisis, she writes on Twitter, to Biden and Kamala Harris. The humanitarian and national security crisis on the southern border is the direct result of your open border policy. As I said in my 2020 presidential campaign, we can't have a secure nation if we don't secure our borders. That, for the political left, is considered full-on heresy. Democrats hear that and they go completely out of their heads. Loud noises! They don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. And they are just absolutely infuriated with Representative Gabbard for daring to say anything like this. Tulsi who? Aren't you unemployed? I have made the argument many times in my life that there are no moderate Democrats. There are no moderate Democrats. 
and they're proving that to be the case. What's interesting is that a couple of them have popped up. We're starting to see this. Whoa, 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 whoa. We're even starting to see this from from uh, people uh, all, all around uh, the country. It's like that Meghan McCain story. Oh, I don't recognize Joe Biden. So, so you're apologizing. This is the mea culpa. That's what it is. And there are a lot of people who clearly didn't want Trump. They couldn't stand him or the tweets, but they didn't want this. They didn't want this crazy. They didn't want this fakakta nonsense nightmare that they're getting over the last eight months. They don't want it. They don't want any part of it. So Tulsi Gabbard and I would disagree about Syria, maybe, and disagree about a host of other things. She had actually said she was doing a video series on Rumble, and I have my videos at Rumble, rumble.com. Just search for Tony Katz and subscribe. Greatly appreciate it. We've thought about going live with this show, doing like the first hour live on Rumble. I may actually initiate that. I'm, I, I've been closer to saying, yeah, let's just, let's, just, let's just do it up. Why not? Why not? Just stream it. It'll be fun. I don't know if it'll change the show or not. That's always my, my worry, that the, the camera changes the, the, the show. And I don't want to change the show. But I'm glad that she's there. We'll, we'll agree. We'll disagree. If I can get her to think a couple of different ways about, about some things, like, you know, the, 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 the proper role of government, I'd be, I'd be overjoyed. But we could talk about it. I'm glad she's over at Rumble, rumble.com. It's, it's great. The left just wants to destroy her because she is not in lockstep, nay, goosestep on all the issues they have determined are important. And they determine these issues based on the day, based on the hour, based on the moment. That's what they do. And all she wants to say is, is that you can't have a, a, a nation if you don't have a border. And all that Henry Cuellar is saying is, Otherwise, why have laws on the books? These are rational points of view. And for the left, it gets you destroyed. Rationality is the evil. Speaking of irrational, Andrew Cuomo. There's a story over at Newsday.com that getting rid of Andrew Cuomo, the former governor of New York, the guy who was trying to get it on with this one and that one and the other one and then lying about the amount of dead people that he killed in New York because of COVID and nursing homes. Well, the Newsday says that ousting Cuomo has disenfranchised New York voters. I am appalled, writes, uh, they, they, they write, by the Albany coup d'etat in which Andrew Cuomo's political rivals trampled the rights of the electorate and basic due process for their own political gain. He resigned of his own volition. There was no impeachment. There was no movement by the New York General Assembly, and I believe there, there should have been. If I was Cuomo, don't let those people up the hook. Force them to do it. Put it on them. Cancel culture, they're blaming this one on. How dare they? So Cuomo tweets this out and writes, this was politics every step of the way. You, you can't be that. You, n- 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 no. 
You're a phony. Hey, this guy's a great big phony. You cannot be that detached from reality. You can't. It can't can't be done. It is remarkable that he thinks that somehow he's still a victim in this and he's a good guy in this. You chose to resign. You chose to send nursing home patients back and kill them while you took a book deal worth millions. That's on you. That's all you. You are the one who was joking around with your brother on CNN while he was advising you how to get out of these scandals. That's... <laughs> Don't blame other people for that. Don't... It, it, is, it is the lack of just basic decency. And there are people who are going to back him up, you know. There are people who would give him a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance, etc. That, to me, is, is where it's, it, it, it is just mind-boggling. You can't be a Democrat and somehow believe we should have a border. But you could still support Andrew Cuomo and be a Democrat in the good graces of the Democratic Party. That's some backward stuff right there. That, kids, is what we call messed up. Something else that's messed up. I, I, we had brought this up a couple weeks ago. As we have seen uh, schools and the discussion of what's going on with school boards, what's going on um, with, with getting kids into schools and, and with masks, and you have uh, Dr. Leanna Wen on uh, CNN uh, saying that uh, we are we are absolutely positively nowhere near the point where we're going to be getting rid of masks in schools. Yeah, I generally agree with Dr. Gottlieb. I agree that masks are a very powerful layer of protection, but it's one layer. And if we have so many other layers that are present, masking may be one that could go away. But I would say that, let's say a school where it is, or a particular class, everybody is vaccinated in that class. And also the level of community transmission is declining. I could imagine that situation being where we remove masks because we have all these other layers, or if we have rapid testing. Imagine if every child and teacher were tested every morning and also they're vaccinated. You can imagine that situation, even if there's high levels of community spread, that maybe you can remove masks at that time. But we are nowhere near that yet. And I think what we really need to do is get the vaccines authorized for children as soon as that's possible and also really ramp up testing because... Well, no, the, the, the testing is, is the inconsequential part of it. Uh, she's making the argument that even if you, know, if you had everybody vaccinated, maybe you could get rid of, of masks. So the only way your kid doesn't wear a mask in school is if we put this jab into them. But people are very leery of jabs when it comes to their kids. They may want to wait a little while. Meanwhile, you still haven't proven that masks are effective at all. I think it goes the other way. We're seeing more and more that masks may add to serious issues, especially to the learning of your children. 
But again, this goes to this this conversation that we were having a few weeks ago about these these teachers and teachers unions who believe, you know, they say things like it's our kids or our students. We're doing this for our kids. They're, they're, they're not your kids. They're not your kids. I, I did an entire talk about this. I've written about this. They are not yours. And this this. I think the terminology, the way it's done, is is meant to evoke really a, a love and a caring for the kids. I think that for many teachers, that's where it's from. But it's been co-opted by people who clearly think they're in charge. And I saw over uh, there at Instapundent, Glenn Reynolds had found the flashback video. You may remember this. This was Melissa Harris-Perry on MSNBC. You remember her name? Going back to, I believe, 2012, this was a commercial they did for MSNBC. We have never invested as much in public education as we should have because we've always had kind of a private notion of children. Your kid is yours and totally your responsibility. We haven't had a very collective notion of these are our children. So part of it is we have to break through our kind of private idea that kids belong to their parents or kids belong to their families and recognize that kids belong to whole communities. Once it's everybody's responsibility and not just the households, then we start making better investments. When she said this, People said, are you nuts? And it was so radical that we left it be. Now you realize that Melissa Harris-Perry was just laying down groundwork that had already been laid down in academic institutions for years about how they see your kids. This was 10 years ago. And they were working on it 10 years before that. So you're at least 20 years behind the times. So now's the moment to get with it. There are people out there who really believe that your kids aren't yours and that they should have much, as much of a say in that child as you do. As a matter of fact, more because they're the experts. And these people consider themselves rational. It's rational to exclude you, the parent, from the relationship with your child. Well, let's not buy into that. Let's fight that too. I'm Tony Katz. Yes, I oppose lockdowns. Lockdowns make people crazy. Lockdowns are horrific. Lockdowns are wrong. I oppose them. What's going on in Australia? I'll get into that story. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. But the same thing as New Zealand, where they've locked down the whole country. Because there was, I think, one case of COVID. It's an irrational decision. But the story goes that a couple of gang members were busted in New Zealand. Because they were trying to sneak into Auckland. Police are patrolling the back roads near Auckland's southern border, and they see a suspicious vehicle on the roads. These are New Zealand cops. They see this car, and this car sees them and says, Oh no, the New Zealand Kiwi Fuzz. Boom, they're off like a light. They take off. They're not going to get caught. The police are like, we're after you. Boom. They turn around and they start traveling. They start chasing. Next thing you know, police catch up to the car. Get it to pull over. New Zealand Kiwi Fuzz are on the case. 
Next thing you know, you got these two guys, 23 and 30, are in are in the car. They were trying to get into the city. Police discovered $100,000 in cash and three buckets of KFC chicken, several cups of coleslaw, a large fry, and four large bags of other items from KFC. Um, if things are so bad that people are trying to steal cash and chicken and bring it into a lockdown city, we're, we're in bad times, man. Now, I will, I will admit that this is the dystopia that Orwell never warned us about. Orwell never warned us that people may be smuggling in KFC. And I'm, and I'm sure it was extra crispy, right? Why would you waste your time with anything else? Now, maybe these guys are criminals or not. I don't know. But they're going to appear in court for breaching the public health order. They face up to six months in prison. Who knows what they stole? If they stole anything, it might have been their cash. But for being outside. Yeah. It's a strange world and a dangerous one. This is Tony Katz today.